microphone. Hi, good morning, everyone. I have a special guest for you today. My friend, uh, Dr. Jillian Apps, she is currently working at uh, the Applied Geodynamics Laboratory within the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas in Austin. But what's really cool about Jill's story is uh, she works in Austin and comes uh, for months at a time, but she's actually based in the UK. So I thought she would have some really interesting perspectives for our eGeos podcast. Welcome, Jill. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so I have uh, just some open-ended questions. So for this part of uh, the podcast, I've been asking all the guests similar questions. And the first one I always start with is a way for uh, the audience to get to know you a little bit better and a little bit more intimately. So my first question is, uh, which is actually a series of a few questions, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Because sometimes maybe that's different. And then what influenced you most while you were growing up? Yeah, very good questions. So I was born in North London and I was um, 13 when we moved to Colchester. And I'll give you a little background as to why, but that's in Essex, which is northeast of London. So I would consider myself a Londoner very much because both my parents were multi-generational Londoners and mm -hmm. very, very steeped in North London traditions. Um, um, they were both very faith-based people. So okay. my mother was an Anglican and my father a Methodist and that was very important in their life. And so the structure of that and the North London background was carried through my childhood certainly and we moved to Colchester because I have a mentally handicapped sister mm -hmm. um, learning disabled is a good term but in the case of my sister it's a genuine handicap okay. and she, she needed to be looked after in a another home environment that was kind and mm -hmm. so we moved to Colchester where I did my high school, or most of my high school anyway. And that was a really good move for me. And in terms of where did I go to school? So I'll come to that in a bit, but what influenced me probably most when I was growing up is my father's integrity mm -hmm. and my mother's commitment to me being an individual who could make my own way. So I have just one hand and right from the get-go, it was always my choice whether I had help from um, the medical profession in terms of artificial hands. Okay. And she felt that wherever I could do things myself, that would be a much better solution. Mm -hmm. And so she gave me that freedom and that authority over my own body and my own decisions and I thought I think that was extremely influential mm -hmm. and then my other big influence in my life was my uncle who was my mother's cousin actually but we always referred to him as my uncle who was an aeronautical engineer and he worked his way from the bottom up and he became the future project designer for Hawker Siddeley which was the big 
aeronautical design firm in the UK. Mm-hmm. And he was a continual inspiration because he was like my mother's brother. She was an only child. And so we saw a great deal of him and his family. And he both inspired through telling his own stories, but through listening to others. So again, he was a great enabler, a great encourager. But um, (laughs) he just, he and his sons always had huge projects on the go, you know, trains, Mm -hmm. model trains or kites with cameras inside them or (laughs) it was just such a joy going and seeing what was possible it seemed like you know the sky was the limit and he had a subscription to Scientific American and that just totally swept me away in in Mm -hmm. terms of what the possibilities were with science and I remember one of the most influential stories he told me was about the termites in Australia who build these (laughs) enormous mounds and he said would you believe it they understand air conditioning (laughs) and he explained to me all about airflow through the termite mounds oh that's amazing it's fantastic isn't it yeah (laughs) that and and his love of fractals when the whole that kind of math science came out that was just Mm -hmm. fantastic Yeah. Oh, that's funny. You mentioned fractals. I remember learning about them when I was in elementary school and I remember being completely fascinated and perplexed by that whole idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It is. is, Yeah. Yeah. And I should not also forget my grandparents who gave up their own lives effectively to help my mother bring up my sister because she mm-hmm. lived with us until she was 16 okay and they lived with us in our house and they had one room in our home in london and they were just the kindest and talk about an example of unconditional love so mm-hmm. i think that rounded out the influences <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's good. It sounds like you had a really close, tight network of support. Yeah. Very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a great story. Um, So I think you already maybe have alluded to this, but um, where did you go to school? We can talk about college now. Um, What are your degrees? And can you tell us a story about your career path? (laughs) Well, where I chose to apply to is one of those. So I think a little bit of context. Um, In Britain after the Second World War, there was a real attempt to make college, or in the case of British students would call it university, available to anyone who wanted to go and that people should be able to go to wherever they wanted to go. So there was a very Mm -hmm. big drive to take out bias in applications. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my first boyfriend applied to Cambridge and when he broke up with me, which was very soon after he'd done this application, I decided I was going to apply to Cambridge. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. More out of sheer, (laughs) sheer, um, (laughs) I wouldn't call it bitterness, but definitely it was, it was entirely because of him. I'm like, 
if you can do it, I can do it. Mm-hmm. I love <laughs> the, that. The irony is he did not get in and I did. Oh, that <laughs> is so perfect. <laughs> the the um, flip side of that was that um, I applied for geology and I'd, I had decided to do, well, for earth sciences, but I had decided to do a geology O-level, um, which our school did not actually allow for and, and didn't do so I, I actually did that O level at the boys grammar school mm-hmm. and um, so when I actually got in my physics teacher in my own school said Good l- goodness gracious me how did that happen <laughs> <laughs> because I don't think she rated me very highly at the time <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> oh it must be that teaching at the grammar school <laughs> But uh, it was quite amusing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I went and did my undergraduate at Cambridge, but I have to say it was challenging because mm-hmm. um, those of us who came from uh, less um, schools that, or high schools that had not necessarily sent people to Cambridge before, I think we felt like fishes out of water. But yeah. the, the, the college I actually went to within Cambridge was... Um, had many more people like me most of the men I would say we were a college that was 80% men um, okay so mostly engineering mostly science and technology and mathematicians and um, so that's where I did my undergraduate and then I went straight from there to Shell and with my degree and became a geophysicist and after three years of that decided there was no way I could survive any longer commuting in London without some field work. Mm -hmm. So I applied to do a PhD. And at that point I went back to actually Liverpool University Mm -hmm. following a supervisor I decided upon um, having met him when he was examining a thesis in Bergen University okay. and so I applied to a few places but I only chose places where the climate was warm because having gone through Cambridge where pretty much every Easter we used to go to places where the rain went vertically up my trouser legs oh my I was gosh. Like, no geology does not have to be this hard uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah So then I went on to Liverpool and that was a really different experience because Liverpool University is in a much what I would call pithier environment. Liverpool Mm -hmm. City is itself a much more gritty city than Cambridge. And we didn't have um, halls of residence or anything like that. So we were living in the city and it was a lot of fun. But it was it was a really different experience for me being up north. Mm hmm. Oh, that sounds great. Oh. Um, another question I have for you. So you've already alluded to it, um, saying that you had gone and worked for Shell. So this question is can be relevant um, to your early career, sort of how your career has evolved through time. But what energy sector are you in? And what do you like most about your specific field? So I have spent all my career except these last few years in the oil industry, oil and gas Mm -hmm. exploration industry. Mm -hmm. And I've worked for Shell, BP, BHP, and then went back to BP as my final um, Mm -hmm. 
oil industry experience and I've worked every part of it from basin scale exploration all the way down to production mm -hmm. and I would say what I love about our industry is that the immediacy of the problem solving, the application mm -hmm. of the work to a problem that means something, that literally creates jobs within a number of years. And you can see the hardware being put together of a massive engineering project and that creates work that creates energy that enables people to live the kind of lives mm -hmm. we live and sure. that is what has driven me despite all the downsides of the oil industry in terms of environmental impact um, and partly sure. because I come from Europe it isn't it isn't seen throughout most of Europe in quite such a black and white way. It's becoming more so because of the big climate change issues we are facing now. But in the past, it was seen as something that could be in balance with other okay. environmentally positive effects. Um, so it wasn't until I came to America, I saw it as such a politically black and white issue. Sure, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I often wondered, um, how that view is because we aren't really exposed to that in the U.S. Mm. Like it's hard for us to imagine that unless we've actually spent significant time there through work or live there. But yeah, I, I feel like it, it should it would be great if it was viewed more as, um, you know, you can find a balance. With yes. And I think I think we've swung away a little bit from that in Europe, partly because of the dramatic nature mm. of the climate change. But what was always true in Europe was there was always a balance between environmentally sensitive mm -hmm. um, production and mm -hmm. the the license to produce oil yeah so you didn't have a free-for-all ever yeah. in Europe mm -hmm. um, okay. it was very carefully managed mm -hmm. yeah oh that's fascinating maybe there we can we I feel like we always have so much to learn from y'all <laughs> <laughs> no I don't think so I think we learn from each other Hang on a minute, just yeah <laughs> Yeah, we learn from each other because I've learned so much through working in America, I must say. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. And, and again, I think part of it is that immediacy of the connection between creating opportunities that create jobs. Mm -hmm. When you yeah. live in the Gulf Coast, oh, my goodness, you are hardwired to that. Yes. So much closer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say... Um, I grew up in northern Wisconsin, and it's very, that was sort of the manufacturing center of the U.S. Um, yeah. up until probably the last decade or two. It's starting to come back, definitely, but um, I would say that that is absolutely hardwired um, into the culture. It's like you have yeah. to, you know, work your 12-hour shift, and uh, there's a lot of factory workers, and it's very blue-collar, and putting food on the table is like the end goal at the end of the day, and there is I grew up with very little um, environmental awareness. It was all self-taught through the public education. So yeah, that, that definitely, I could see, I could definitely see where you're coming from. So I wanted to ask you, you said that you had spent most of your career up until now in, in the oil industry. 
Yeah. What is your favorite um, basin that you worked in, <laughs> in terms of the geology, or did you have a favorite project that you worked on? I did. <laughs> well, I had, I had a couple, but um, my favorite basin has to be the Gulf of Mexico because I've spent so long there. <laughs> But my favorite project was actually in Trinidad and oh, okay. it was Angostura. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. Oh, you worked Angostura. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. So we took it from discovery to production, okay. basically. Yeah, a BHP. Wow. And it was such a fabulous time to be in BHP because it was a small enough, not that the corporation is small by any means because it's a huge mm -hmm. mining corporation, but the oil division was quite small at the time. Sure. And it was so well linked. The different groups were were better linked than any other company I'd worked for. Um, mm -hmm. as, and it was it was such a challenging project because the seismic initially was really difficult. And yes, a couple of the people we worked with, I mean, particularly geophysicists who were actually interpreting the seismic data, they were amazing. How close mm -hmm. they got to the reality, given the data quality we had, sure. was astonishing. And then we had um, French Total Partners, which also okay. made for a really exciting dynamic because their um, understanding of the geology was quite different to ours. But having worked in the Alps, that didn't surprise me. So it, that Trinidad project had so, so much similarity with my PhD, which was on um, a fallen basin okay. to a big mountain belt in that case, rather than an accretionary prism setting, but it, sure. it still had a lot of very similar elements. And I loved that project so much. Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's cool. Oh, I did not know all, that about you. <laughs> all it's related, there are other fields in that whole sure. chain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's really so. I have a random question for you. You know, Angostura bitters. Oh yeah. <laughs> do you did that come before or after the well? <laughs> um, do you know? Actually, I'm pretty sure all those prospects were named after rum. Frank. Uh, the first set. Angostura. is a rum. Angostura is a rum. Yes, it's oh, a okay. rum. Okay. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Because I just noticed oh, that once. Man. I was like. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Good stories about the prospect names there. No, yeah. That's another, another time. <laughs> prospect stories. Oh my gosh, that is a treasure trove, I'm sure. <laughs> oh goodness. So you are now in um, academia. Is that what you consider applied academia? Is where you're applied academia. Yes, yeah, residing now. Geology, in as you can hear in its title, is definitely about economic economically yeah. valuable projects and that's yeah. I think why I find it acceptable yeah I yeah. I feel I feel you on that one it, it definitely makes a lot of sense um so within your field right now um do you foresee any new trends over the next year so thinking of going from COVID to post-COVID maybe in five years or ten years do you mean related to the impact of COVID yeah, if, if that, if you think it will yeah. have an impact. Mm -hmm. I do. Yeah. I mm -hmm. think the fact we've been able to work remotely and the fact, and this doesn't impact me so much, but the teaching remotely, I think is going to have a huge impact on the way mm -hmm. universities deliver their function of teaching 
I mm. don't think we're going to go back to everyone having to be in place. I've got a feeling mm. a hybrid existence will will be the future for that. Mm -hmm. And similarly with research, I think mm. people are now understanding that you can live in France and have a job in Aberdeen and you can still function in research for quite a lot of that time. Personally, what it's done for me is connect me better with my team when we are not physically there. Because yeah. now we're all used to using Zoom and Teams and yep. I would say a lot of that has actually been very, very, very positive. Um, but I wouldn't want to replace it completely, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I yeah, think I, I think we need to find a balance because the thing that I would worry about is in budget constrained environments that, you know, there might be less, um, you might be encouraged to travel less, but I would mm -hmm. say it's still very important that you are face-to-face -face for a significant length of time. Sure. Yeah, no, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And I see, um, I almost see using Zoom and remote working, like the hybrid model as enabling for oh. um, young mothers, people who are taking care of elderly parents, maybe people that have some type of disability and they just need, you know, a little bit more downtime or quiet time in their home. I see it as sort of a way to enable maybe a whole bunch of other people that were kind of excluded from the conversation or the workforce before. I agree. So, yeah. And I think particularly, for example, Native American communities where you're, mm -hmm. the distances are very huge and the family are critical for caring yeah. for say elderly relatives then yeah. you might be able to reach more young people in those small remote communities. Yes, mm -hmm. I would agree, yeah. absolutely. And I hope and would imagine that universities are very much aware of that opportunity, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like they kind of have to, to find that balance, like you said. Mm. I think so. No, that's good. So I have two more questions for you. So these are a little bit more, um, <laughs> less <laughs> straightforward so feel free to take it however you like but do you have any advice for someone who is currently building their dream yes I do and <laughs> <laughs> it I would the first thing is it takes a village mm -hmm. is the most important thing I would absolutely say to you well two things it takes a massive amount of commitment so it's good to have a dream, mm -hmm. but you have to be willing to throw a lot of energy behind something that may not work out. Yeah. And that probability of failure piece is actually, I think, a real stumbling block for many. Mm -hmm. And yet... In my own experience, that failure in its own right, you know, it's a little trite and very well and overused maxim that experience and negative experience is one of the best life educators, but it is. Yeah. And what you learn in the process of failing to get to either one strand of a dream or an entire dream is so much 
mm-hmm. about what it's going to take to get to the next, either the next strand of your dream or another dream entirely. You, you have learned a huge amount about yourself. You've learned about your own tenacity. You've learned who in your life is a genuine connection, who yeah. you can depend on and who to seek out the next time. You know, not yeah. necessarily the same people, but what kind of people you need to balance your own tendencies, your own strengths, your own weaknesses, what actually you need to get to the next dream or the next stage of your dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much so for that. I, it's not I an easy process to live yeah. through, but it is actually what all of us do at different times. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels a very lonely process at the time, failing, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. It's actually where you get to the core of who you are and what matters to you. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I would say about dreams is it's always important to put them in a bigger life context. Because we can get very much driven by other people's expectations of dreams. And that's not true of everyone. But um, you want to make sure that you know it's your where you are meant to be going rather Mm -hmm. than where someone else wants you to be going. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's true. (laughs) It's It's quite difficult to unravel sometimes. (laughs) It is. And I think this, sometimes I feel, and I don't know if it's just human nature, but there's this emphasis on like the failure. And I feel like every time that I feel like I have like, quote unquote, failed in my life, you know, maybe six months goes by a year goes by and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that happened because now this, I am here. And if that wouldn't have happened, oh my gosh, it would have just been terrible so I've I have begun to realize this finally absolutely (laughs) and you're right you're absolutely right it feels like it at the time you feel like your world is ending yeah but you know that whole thing about one door closes another door opens another Mm -hmm. window opens or at least you notice there's another window (laughs) yeah and that window looks a lot better (laughs) it's got a lot of windows maybe I'll buy another one of those instead (laughs) oh goodness So one last question for you. Um, What do you do to maintain your happiness and your success? So this can be um, in terms of self-care, any sort of hobbies or um, just anything, basically. Um, I, I have a huge need to be part of a strong relationship to... Mm also then have a few good friends I don't I'm not what I would call I'm not at all a gregarious person Mm -hmm. I've worked very hard at being socially um (laughs) and socially enabled but I Mm -hmm. I am definitely somebody who gains enormous strength from my few really good friends and Mm -hmm. So my happiness is dependent on having a home environment that I feel comfortable in. Yeah. To have things around me that remind me of my friends, my family, those who aren't with me, but 
mm-hmm. have supported me in the past or you know are good good memories mm-hmm. and then my success oh again having a, a, a good foundation and being able to f- refer back I still my father died when he was 61 okay but I still call on him and his thinking mm-hmm. um, my parents both ended up as Quakers and and he used the process a Quaker process of discernment in okay. his professional life and it's a very powerful way to think about how to move forwards and how to be be mindful of Mm -hmm. the decisions you're making and so in terms of maintaining success much of it I would say has come to me via opportunities that I've just recognized as really good ones or okay. to us as a pair, because working a dual career is actually more challenging probably yes. than working a single career. But but we've taken chances and some of them were pretty risky ones. And yes. that leap in the dark piece has actually not been so terrifying because we are we have each other and we've always had yes. a strong family foundation mm-hmm. we're very fortunate and very good friends and yeah and that's helped yeah oh that's <laughs> awesome <laughs> no, that's to. i mean i love yeah. the way you know friendships span so many different generations it's wonderful yeah no it really is well, thank you so much, Jill, for spending some time with me and helping me. I mean, I've known you for a long time now, but I feel like I have this whole other <laughs> level of awareness <laughs> with you. It's like awesome. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> I That's been the part that I've enjoyed is just having a chance because you don't need to necessarily, when you have a friendship, you don't need to go backwards over your mm-hmm. whole life. It's been quite yeah. a privilege. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you guys for tuning in and look forward um, to our next guest. Thank you. Have a good night. (laughs) Bye.